Hopefully you're at Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our series entitled The Kingdom of Heaven, beginning to once again rediscover and understand what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And we've begun this journey looking at the greatest sermon ever given, the Sermon of the Mount, given none other than by Jesus Christ himself, and we find ourselves in verses 13 through 16 this morning. So let us read the verses together. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It shall is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As Jesus Christ is speaking to not only his intimate disciples, but the crowds that are following him, he is informing them of the characteristics of one who is a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, synonymous also with the kingdom of God. And as we discover here, Jesus now, after displaying one who is blessed within the kingdom of God, now he, he emphasizes our responsibility in the kingdom of God. By stating that you and I are meant to be salt and light in this world. That is our purpose. That is why we are here. But what does that mean exactly? Did Jesus just simply select two common items to use as metaphors to describe and to illustrate our role within the society? Well, I was surprised to discover that in both historic literature of Judaism and historic literature of the Roman Empire, salt and sunlight were two of the most coveted components for the welfare of any healthy society. By Jesus selecting these two items, salt and light, he is saying that we are imperative to the health and welfare of the entire world. That's interesting. That puts it in a much bigger context, in my opinion. But what does it mean to be salt? What does it mean to be light? And then let us also notice that the salt, is, it's possible to lose its flavor, but you know, sodium chloride doesn't lose its saltiness, so what is he referring to there? And of course, the illustration of a light being lit and then placed under a, a, a jar or a bowl so the light is hidden, we can understand that that is something that would not have occurred in that culture. But Jesus here is making it abundantly clear that this is our responsibility. The word you is all-inclusive. It means all of us. So when he says, you are the salt, he means it personally. When he says, you are the light, he means it personally. And as a result, we must learn from what he is trying to illustrate here before us in our text. Let us begin with the salt. 
The first understanding of salt in that culture would be the fact that salt has two primary purposes in that culture. Number one, to influence the taste of the food in which it's being added to. To influence the taste of the food that it's being added to. You know, um, married to Dina, everything is too salty to her. Everything is too salty. And therefore, everything that we have is very bland. And this has caused marital problems. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you can pray for us, please. But, uh, so she's very sensitive to salty things. And yet, her favorite food is popcorn. <sighs> Women. No. I guess popcorn doesn't necessarily have to be salted, but if you don't salt it, then what good is it, right? Amen. That's what God made it for. The second purpose of salt in that culture was a preservative, actually, because they didn't have common refrigeration like we do today. So they used salt to preserve the decay of the meats in which they had. Of course, it wasn't a long-term solution, but it did slow down the process. And scholars believe that we are meant to be an influence upon our society and also to slow the decay of our society. And that's why we have been uh, called to be salt in our society and in our culture. Years ago, when I was a new believer, I was in a home Bible study led by a husband and wife. And the wife was very vocal about her faith and she always believed that she had uh, significant insight into the scriptures that no one else had. And I remember her teaching on this particular point. And she said that many Christians misunderstand. The whole reason that God has called us to be salt is because if you've ever gotten salt in your eye, you know it's an irritant. And we are meant to be irritating to the world. Now, she had that gift, folks, okay? I'm going to tell you right up front she had that gift but it was the farthest thing from the truth that's not what jesus was saying at all i believe that the common understanding of the use of salt in that culture is exactly what jesus was referring to the question then becomes how do we influence our culture our society and this is where many of us may lose our understanding of this uh, illustration that Jesus is, is, is coming by. The number one way that we can influence our society and preserve our society's moral decay is by living as the Christians that God has called us to be. That is the primary essence of what he is saying here that we would live as the Christians that God has asked us to be. Meaning that if we want to influence our culture, let them see what God is doing in our lives. Let them see the, genu the genuineness of our faith, the authenticity of our faith. Let them see that what we say we believe, we truly and utterly believe. And therefore, we can influence. And like I have learned with Bill, my neighbor, as I mentioned just earlier, and even with my mom, 
witnessing to her for over 30 years and her coming to faith just before a couple years before she died is that people are looking to see if we are truly authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And you'll be, you might be surprised. They're not looking for us to be perfect. I think the world understands that no one is perfect, but authentic. And that, therefore, if we fail or if we make a mistake, that we're humble enough to acknowledge that mistake and apologize for it. And I think that this is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now, the concern about the salt losing its flavor, its saltiness, is something that needs a little bit further explanation. Again, going back into the ancient world, we would discover that salt was produced in one of two ways. It was produced by the evaporation of seawater, but it was also provided through what was called salt marshes. But these salt marshes were highly um, uh, impure, and there were all different components that were found mixed in with the salt, and it wasn't a very reliable source, but it was, in some cases, the only source of salt. And what would happen is that if this salt produced by the salt marshes were put in various circumstances, for example, on the ground, the soil of the ground actually in and of itself would leach out the saltiness of the sodium and leave just a residue that was so diluted that it wasn't good for anything. I think that's an interesting illustration. I cannot prove that this is what Jesus was referring to, but let me give it to you in its entirety that our saltiness will be leached out from us the more and more we act and conduct ourselves like the world. Very interesting thing to consider. If I am meant to live apart from the, uh, you know, the aspects of this world and live sanctified and separated for the purposes of Jesus Christ, I could see how the effectiveness of my witness would be diminished the more and more I acted just like the world. You know, many churches and many well-meaning pastors believe that we need to become more and more like the world to reach the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I disagree with that. I think we need to become more and more like Jesus to let them see in us a renewed and sanctified spirit. I think it is interesting, he says, that the residue that is left, it's good for nothing. It can't, the salt can't be returned to it, but it is to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men, meaning it's just discarded in its ineffectiveness. As one wrote, he stated, the salt and light figures make it clear that Jesus intended his people to influence the world. The main point of the salt in this text is not to create thirst or to serve as uh, simply a preservative against moral decay of the world, but to improve its taste and to make the world a better place. And I like what he says there because it's not only are we trying to resist the moral decay, but also make it better in the same way. But let us take a look 
further. As we get into verse 14, he then says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Hill, in that culture, again, traveling back to the ancient world, the various limestone that was used for a city building in the reflective character of the sun would be a beacon. It would actually shine during the day as the sunlight hit it. Cities were also, when they were first being built, they would look for the highest ground in the area to build the city, to be a beacon to all who were traveling to that city, to allow them to find that city at night or during the day. So you wouldn't want to build a city in a valley where no one could see it. And you certainly wouldn't want to hide the city from the view of people trying to seek it. In verse 15, Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The primary purpose of us being lights is to give direction and to draw people unto Christ. To give direction and to draw people unto Christ. As that commentator went on to write, he says, A lamp provides light, light precisely so that one can see in the darkness, and it is nonsense to conceal it. The citizens of the kingdom are light, and they must shine and not conceal that light. The result is an enhancement of God's reputation in the world, not an aggrandment of the lamp itself. Meaning, we don't look to glorify the lamp, but the light of the lamp, who is Christ. And the light that we shine doesn't originate in us. We are merely reflecting the light of God Himself. You and I, these are huge responsibilities that are being given to us. We are meant to be a beacon in the dark world in which we live. Again, we cannot be that beacon if we are not living in accordance to what God has said. We cannot be that salt. We cannot be that light if we will not allow God to work in and through us. Now, both of these principles you can find back into the Old Testament. And Israel was meant to be that salt. Israel was meant to be that light. But their constant dis, uh, you know, misbehavior, their constant disobedience, never allowed them to fulfill those purposes. Now in the new covenant, instead of that single nation being a beacon unto the world, he is now using each and every one of us as we go forward. And this again, as I say, is a huge, huge responsibility. Notice that it's the works in which we do that glorify our Father who is in heaven. Jesus said, when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will be done, but your will be done. He says, Father, glorify your Son so your Son may glorify you. 
It was through the obedience to the will of God that Jesus Christ was capable of glorifying God his Father. So the same would be true for you and I. When we decide to live not according to our will, but according to the will of God, and allowing that will to manifest itself each and every day in our lives. As Paul says, laying ourselves down in Romans 12, 1 and 2 as a living sacrifice, proving and demonstrating the perfect will of God. The will of God is something that is greatly debated in Christianity today. Does God have a specific will for each and every believer? Or is there just a simple general will of God that is outlined in the scriptures? And my answer to that question is both. Clearly, there is both. There is the specific will that God lays out for the believer in Jesus Christ. 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 <coughs> and then there is the um, that general will. And then there's the specific, where God places you as an individual within the body of Christ where he would have you. As Paul wrote about our salvation, not being of works, but simply being of faith, in verse 10 of chapter 2, we always read verses 8 and 9, and we've memorized them, but we always divorce them from verse 10. And in the Greek, the sentence doesn't complete with verses 8 and 9, it completes with verses 10 where we are His workmanship, that we have been prepared for various good works from the, before the foundations of the earth. Meaning that God has purposed us, each and every one of us, with a specific purpose and role within the body of Christ. So there is both. Now many then ask, well, how can I know the will of God? First of all, let me dis- dispense with a myth that continues to perpetuate itself in Christianity. And that is that God's will is just something hidden. And I have to seek it like Indiana Jones and the Raider of the Lost Ark. Swinging across, you know, moats, running from large objects, you know, walking through the spider webs and being willing to face down the tarantulas that live within. See, I believe it's just the opposite. I don't think we have to go looking for God's will for our lives. I think God's will is looking for us. And the moment that we lay ourselves down as living sacrifices, I think is the moment that God then can impart to us what His will is for our lives. But as long as you and I have these preconceived notions and understandings and ideas, let me dispense with another myth. That the only will of God for your life is accordance to the way you are wired. God is in the rewiring business. Don't don't we have that down by now? Remember what Moses said to God when he was being sent back to Egypt to deliver the people from the children, uh, um, the children of Israel from Pharaoh and Egypt? But I can't speak. I can't do all these things. And what did God say? I don't care what you bring to the table. I am who I am. I'm going to fulfill it in and through you. It's not what we bring. God's in the rewiring business. And he often changes the course and the direction. I've often heard testimonies of people saying to me in very successful ministries, this is the last thing I ever expected to do for the Lord. And so let us understand, the will of God is there and us fulfilling it allows us to be the light onto this world. Why? Because we are reflecting God in the actions and the works in which we conduct ourselves. 
Now, of course, if we were to hide that light, it would be no benefit to anyone. And again, darkness helps no one who is found in darkness, right? It doesn't work. The world has now, I believe, coming to its conclusion that there are certain things that we in this world, even with the great technological advances, the development of AI and all these other things, that we simply cannot answer. It's beyond us. It's absolutely beyond us. There are aspects of the human life that we cannot fix. It's beyond our capability. And this is God once again demonstrating to all of us our inability to fix or to save ourselves. We need to be lights in this world showing and demonstrating to this world that God is in the restoration business. And though I might have been a reflective glass that was mired by sin prior to coming to Jesus Christ, now in Christ, that mire, that filth, that dirt has been washed away, and I am now capable of reflecting Christ in the world, in my world, in my circle, with a capability I could not provide for myself. It is interesting to me that when we read these verses, though it is clearly indicating you are the salt, you are the light, we often want to try to apply that in some other way than rather to our own personal lives. You know, I think that we have shown that we are not going to conform this world into righteousness simply by legal means, right? The heart is still desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yet, I still think we need to fight for righteous laws. But righteous laws in and of themselves are not going to save anybody. Because then the law of the Old Testament would have been effective, right? No, it is our responsibility to be salt and light by conducting ourselves in the manner in which God called us to conduct ourselves. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, he wrote this. Matthew wrote to us, he says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the regions and shadows of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In both cases concerning the salt and concerning the light. Our ineffectiveness is brought forward. If the salt loses its saltiness, if the light is dampened and and hidden under a basket, what good are we within the society? Often we have asked the question and seen the decay of our society and, and simply have concluded in many ways that the decay of our society has been a, due to political decay. But is it possible that the church in America is not living according to the manner in which Jesus Christ has called us to live? Is it possible in the rise of this new era, and this is going to be the, word, uh, the uh, 
term that we're going to hear in Christianity going forward in 2021, 22, and so forth. There's a new emerging idea of Christianity. It's called progressive Christianity. And this is something that you and I need to be very aware of. It is a Christianity that holds to certain orthodox doctrines of the Bible, but believes that abortion and homosexuality are completely compatible with Christianity. It is something that is going to change the face of the American culture. There are churches moving in that direction already, unfortunately, because you can have Christianity and your cake and eat it too. There is this push to be non-confrontational and non... Um, uh, what's the other word? Uh, uh, oh boy, I'm glad I don't speak for a living. You know, non-confrontational and... Uh, you know, also trying to appease everybody around us at the same time. And as a result, this new form of Christianity is taking hold, where certain things aren't talked about any longer. This is a direct, direct illustration of saltless Christianity. This is a Christianity that is hidden under the basket and a light that cannot shine and reflect Christ. And as we see, Jesus Christ never compromised in His earthly ministry. And yet, the people most opposed to His ministry were the religious people, weren't they? It wasn't the common people. It wasn't the people who the society had simply written off as you know, sinners too far from the reach of God. No, they were simple people, ordinary people. Even the disciples themselves were fishermen, blue-collar workers that God used ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And each and everything that he did through them, he got all the glory for because everyone knew it wasn't them. In the book of Acts, when they stood before the religious leaders, and the religious leaders looked at them and scrutinized them and said, oh, these are uneducated, untrained men, but they have been with Jesus. Compromise doesn't further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can we agree on that? It only dismisses our effectiveness. And though progressive Christianity may be popular, it won't be life-saving. We don't know what the future holds, only God does. But as one commentator wrote, and I believe he is absolutely true, uh, right in saying this, that regardless of the circumstances that you and I find ourselves in, this mandate to be salt and light is uh, directly um, speaking to us today as much as it was 2,000 years ago. We are to be salt and light regardless of everything else. And that might become more and more of a challenge as we go forward. But if it does, let us understand this. That if the world and our nation become darker and darker, let us always remember the light will become brighter and brighter going forward. I think it is interesting that one politician stated yesterday 
We might have lost a few battles, but we won the war. Oh, I'm sorry, I disagree with you. You might have won a battle, but we who follow Christ, we've won the war.